Hi, my name is Travis McNeely. Thank you so much for coming to my channel to watch these videos. Uh, this video series that we're doing here with Bryston Thomas is on apologetics, specifically in the focus of the relationship between faith and science. A lot of people see them in conflict to one another, but the truth is they're not. And I am excited for you to dive into this series with us. We have many other series on this channel as well. We have a series on Mormon evangelism, so six episodes on that. We have six episodes on Critical Race series, so I wanna encourage you to go check those out as well if you're interested. But also, in the description box below, we're gonna have resources for you. We're gonna have lists of books that you could purchase or articles on the subjects at hand from these different sessions. And so I wanna encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity and go check those things out for yourself, to study for yourself to know why you believe what you believe, which is a big reason why this channel exists. And so we want you, and I, as a pastor, I desire the students that I serve to know why they believe what they believe. And speaking of students, this is shot, this whole series is shot in the context of the student ministry of Woodlawn Baptist Church. So you'll see some students in some of our videos, and at some point uh, later in the series, they're gonna be asking questions of Bryston on different scientific things in relation to faith. So I want to encourage you as well, comment below. If you have a question on anything Bryson says, I want to encourage you to ask a question. And you know what? If I catch that comment before week five of our series, I'll be sure to see if that's a question that'll fit within uh, the series of questions we'll be getting in and try to fit that in for you. So you want to be paying attention and following this series. Please like this video, share it out on social media for anyone who might find this resource helpful. We are unashamed to believe God's word. We are young earth creationists. And we are excited to equip other believers that they might better know God's word and be able to equip it in a world set against them. So we, we love God, we love his word, and we hope this will help shape you to love God and his word as well. Please enjoy this series. Um, and so I consider apologetics to have played a really big part in my spiritual development. And so that's why I often include it whenever I'm giving my testimony. I grew up in a Christian home, and my mom played a really big part in leading me to become a Christian when I was eight years old. Uh, and when I was in high school, I had a really dynamic biology teacher named Sid Galloway, and he taught his science classes in a way that I had never really heard before. Uh, Mr. Galloway played a huge role in helping me to really understand that God's word is absolutely trustworthy and can stand up to any type of argument that man can throw at it. And I very quickly realized that our faith is not one of mindless hoping, but one that's rational and most consistent with what we see in the natural world and in history. And so the study of apologetics didn't lead to my faith. Um, what it did is strengthen my faith so that I would not be shaken by all the secular doctrines that come my way. And so the reason that I'm here is because I'm passionate about helping disciple other believers in the area of apologetics. And I believe that my extra training in the sciences um, will help to explain some of the more scientific aspects of apologetics. And so like the slide says, uh, I'm not a PhD, physicist, geologist, biologist, chemist, or any type of scientist. Uh, I'm not a theologian. Uh, I'm a student who's passionate about defending the word of God and wants to help train members of the church in matters of science relation to our faith. And so the information that I'm going to be giving is coming from the work of young earth creationist researchers, and it's meant to explain what the most current views of Christian scientists uh, who hold to a literal, literal understanding.
Genesis account. And so uh, our first week is going to be the introduction and how to interpret the Genesis account. So there won't be a lot of uh, hard science stuff talked about today. Okay. Um, so why should Christians care about science? And this is a big question. And a lot of people would argue that um, you know this isn't something that we really need to talk about in church. Um, and so uh, creation is a testament to God's glory, and it demands our worship. In Revelation, uh, Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And creation reveals attributes of God, and it's a tool for witnessing. Uh, Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Science and nature have been appropriated and twisted by sinful man to glorify himself and lead people astray. Our beliefs about creation and origins influence our doctrine about the character of God, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, and the nature of our salvation in Jesus. So 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 21 and 22 says this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All right. Uh, and so the next logical thing that people say is this, the Bible isn't a science textbook, though, right? Well, Scripture is the very word of God. 2 Peter 1.21 says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And God's word is entirely truthful. It doesn't have any error in it. Psalm 119, 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Anything the Bible says regarding science is absolutely authoritative, particularly since he, Jesus, is the only eyewitness of the events of creation. John 3, 12 and 13 says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So, does it really matter if Genesis is literal or not? Well, God is totally righteous without any sin. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God's word tells us, tells us that when, when he created everything, it was very good. It was without sin and no corruption. Genesis 1.31 says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Sin entered creation when the very first man, Adam, sinned against a holy, infinite God. Mankind now has an inherent sin nature requiring an eternal spiritual death penalty that it could never satisfy because of who it had sinned against. In 
Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. The whole of creation has become corrupted because of the curse of sin, resulting in physical death, disease, and suffering. Romans 5, 20-22 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. But God, in the incarnate person of Jesus, was able to provide the perfect sacrifice for humanity's sin through his death and resurrection. Since he's, since he's both a representative of humanity, since he's fully human, and, it's, and is infinitely holy and pure, since he's fully God. Romans 5.17 says, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. God will restore all things to their original state that is perfectly good without sin, death, corruption, or suffering. And Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither sh shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So, if these events do not take place, or they're out of order, then the character of God and the foundation for our salvation is compromised. For example, theistic evolution, which is a, a very common alternative that people uh, like to give, uh, which is God using evolution as the basis for creation. This requires death, disease, and suffering to be present billions of years before the coming of modern man. And I say this because evolution requires, ultimately, that lots of creatures would die and small changes accumulate over time. And so that's where I'm getting the death, disease, and suffering that must be present. And so this contradicts Scripture in a number of ways. One, God would be considering a world with millions of years of previous death to be very good, which calls his character into question. The curse of, of death, disease, suffering could not be attributed to humanity, but rather to God's design. 1 Corinthians 15.26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so how can this be an enemy to be destroyed if death was actually a part of God's creation from the beginning? And so if death is God's design, then it would not be the result of sin, and it would not require a savior. Christ's death and resurrection would be meaningless, as would our faith. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And lastly, there would be no need for a restoration of heaven and earth. Going back to Revelation 21, uh, verses 1 through 3 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so this is the crux of this talk today, and really all the talks. And this is why I'm so passionate about this, is because Christians cannot passively sit by while the character of God and the very foundation of the gospel are denigrated, meaning they're, they're stripped down, they're uh, made to be nothing. And man's wisdom is glorified. And so, another common thing that people say is, all of the scientists say, blah, blah, blah. So, there are clear contradictions between modern cosmological and evolutionary thought and biblically rooted ideology. There are very clear contradictions. Um, Christians, though, are not anti-science, nor does Christianity require giving up logic and reason. These are actually fundamental characteristics of our God inherent in the natural world. And so uh, one thing that I would like to, to mention here is that um, historical science is different from operational science in that historical science makes educated assumptions about the past by examining evidence in the present, while operational science is based on measurements and results that don't require assumptions and can be verified by other scientists. And so we would consider sciences like evolution to be historical science, whereas things like physics are more operational science. Um, and so the differences arise in our interpretation of data and our assumptions, particularly regarding historical sciences like evolution. And so science is not unbiased, nor is it infallible. And so there are plenty of examples where science, which is often treated as the ultimate authority, is shown to be deeply flawed. In 2011, this group of researchers at Bayer looked at uh, 67 recent drug discovery projects that were based on preclinical cancer biology research. They found that in more than 75% of these cases, they couldn't replicate the published data. And that's one of the, the main characteristics that a good uh, science experiment should have, is that it should be able to be replicated by other scientists. And these data were published in reputable journals, including Science, Nature, and Cell. And also, uh, a recent investigation identified networks of reviewers and editors of these scientific journals manipulating the peer review process and one group plans to retract over 500 papers across 16 different journals. These abuses involve fraud, but there are these rings of scientists who do not use false identities, but they basically are scratching each other's back to build up this record of publication by favorably reviewing each other's work. This reward system in academia in writing these journals requires publication of articles, 
and it measures the number of citations those articles receive. So a system is inherently vulnerable to cooperation among like-minded scholars who are pushing each other's work into print and then cite each other. Uh, and these are just some of the examples. So ultimately, the question is, whose authority will you trust? Man's fallible word or the completely trustworthy and inerrant word of God, which is the only eyewitness of creation? And so secular wisdom prepare, uh, excuse me, prevails in college, and it can undermine a believer's faith. And so uh, young people are leaving the church at a really rapid rate. Six out of every 10, 20-something-year-old uh, who were involved in the church during their teen years, where we all are right now, are now spiritually disengaged, which means they no longer attend church, they don't read their Bible, and they don't pray. A major reason that these people give for leaving the church is that they just don't believe anymore. And some of the common reasons uh, for their disbelief include things like, uh, oh, well, I learned about evolution when I went away to college. And rational thought makes religion go out the window. Uh, also, lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator is another reason. Uh, I just realized somewhere along the line, I just don't really believe it. And I'm doing a lot more learning, studying, and kind of making decisions myself rather than listening to someone else. And so there's an attack on the foundation of our faith, which is the authority of Scripture. It starts in our schools and our colleges, and then slowly undermines the Word of God, especially through this so-called science and reason. And so we need to be prepared to defend our faith and love, even when we don't know as much as our own. 1 Peter 3.15, which is a classic verse uh, given in apologetics. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Atheism is ultimately a religion. And more often than not, the issue is just as much a heart issue as it is an intellectual one. So false teachers are present in the church, and this creates compromise. So we must trust ourselves to be discerning, which means comparing every teaching to the unchanging word of God. Okay, so um, for the next several slides, I'm going to be talking about common alternatives to a literal creation account. And uh, so I know maybe a lot of you haven't really heard about these things, but... Uh, in seminaries and in a lot of churches, uh, they don't hold to a literal understanding of Scripture, um, and they propose a number of different alternatives. And so I kind of want to go through some of these um, and kind of just inform you about them so you can be prepared to deal with them as you might uh, encounter them. Okay. So the first one I want to talk about is gap and so uh, the purpose of gap theory is to rec reconcile several different beliefs. Um, and this is often a Christian who is doing this. Okay? They're trying to incorporate three different beliefs, a literal view of Genesis, 
belief in an ancient earth, and then opposition to evolution. And by doing that, you're creating an obligation to fit most of the geologic record um, between in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to kind of be looking at Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. Um, and so, I mean, you can see it in this uh, picture right here. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And so, uh, Gapists, who are people who um, hold to the gap theory, they're trying to put billions of years in between those two verses. Okay? Um, and so, gap theory has many variations, but the most popular one it's called ruin reconstruction. It has several uh, tenets or things that it believes. Okay, first one. Genesis 1-1, God created a perfect heaven and a perfect earth where Satan was ruler over an earth that was uh, populated by a race of men without souls. And this is to account for all the hominids, the, um, the human-like uh, fossils. Um, and so I know this sounds strange, but in order to make this all work together, um, you kind of have to come up with a little different idea here. Um, and so the second thing is that Satan ruled over this ancient earth for an indefinite amount of time, potentially billions of years. And so the third thing is that Satan rebelled against God and fell from grace. And this is coming from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And we're not going to turn there right now, but that's kind of where they're getting this from. Um, so he fell from grace and caused, caused sin to enter the universe, bringing on the earth God's judgment in the form of a flood, which is indicated by the water uh, that's referred to in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 2. And it left the earth without form and void. Uh, this this is called Lucifer's flood, and they believe that this created all the plant, animal, and human fossils upon the earth today. And it doesn't bear any genetic relationship to the plants, animals, and fossils that are living on the earth today. Uh, and then the last one is that scripture then resumes with Genesis 1-2, and God creates the earth in a literal six-day period after that. Okay. Um, so going on here, uh, there are a number of problems with gap theory. Um, so starting with uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, um, and this is a good verse to know. Um, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This indicates that there is no gap in the six-day creation period. Um, and so I want to kind of do an aside here. So one thing to note in all of these different accounts of creation, alternative accounts of creation, um, a common argument that you'll hear is that the word day can be used in multiple different senses. Uh, and we understand this in English, because we might say, well, back in the day, or we went camping during the day, or the event lasted three days. 
Okay, you're using the same word, but in multiple different senses. So why can't we just use the word day to represent long periods of time? After all, 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Okay, that's the argument. However, the key is that the Hebrew word for day is yom. And this always means a literal 24-hour day when it's used with a modifier like a number or the words morning and evening. And if you look in the Genesis account, this is used uh, very frequently. The writer of Genesis made absolutely sure that his audience understood creation, the creation week to be literal days. Okay, uh, so that was my side. So other problems. Gappus will argue that the words formless and void, that's in Genesis 1-2, that they imply a process of judgmental destruction and that they indicate a sinful, and therefore not original, state of the earth. However, these words do not tell us about the cause of formlessness. This has to, be, has to come from the context, and that doesn't suggest any judgment. Um, and Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so the King James Version says replenish instead of fill, which would seem to indicate that the earth must have been populated before Adam. So that would read, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth. Okay, so the King James Version version was uh, written in 1611. Well, the word replenish uh, simply meant to fill complete. Um, and so versions before the King James Version also used the word fill. So that's uh, not a very good argument. Um, Genesis 131 says that God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. This includes Satan. Because he's a created being. And that indicates that he had not yet rebelled. And so uh, another thing is just that there's no scriptural evidence for Lucifer's flood. The fossil record that we have today, excuse me, if the fossil record that we have today was formed by Lucifer's flood, then that would indicate that the disease, thorns, and death, that all of that existed prior to Adam's sin. And that contradicts Romans 5.12, which we uh, read earlier, that says, Therefore, just as through one man, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus sin, excuse me, thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Okay. Um, and this would also require that Gaffis conclude that Noah's flood must not have been global, or else would have destroyed the fossil record formed by Lucifer's flood. Okay. Next. And so, uh, there are a number of, number of different modified versions of gap theory, and each one kind of has their own issues. Uh, and we'll briefly talk about them. The pre-creation chaos gap. Um, so this view adds long ages between Genesis 1-2 and uh, 
1, chapter 1, verse 3, meaning that God created the earth and the heavens millions of years ago, and they remained null and void until God resumed creation 6,000 years ago. So there's no like ruin reconstruction thing going on. And so again, this contradicts Exodus 20:11 uh, by suggesting that day one was billions of years, while the other days were just normal length. And so this also contradicts um, Mark 10:5 through 8, which says that mankind was made from the beginning of creation, not billions of years later. And it doesn't explain the formation of the fossil record. Uh, which is one of the primary reasons that secular scientists believe in an old earth. Um, and so uh, the next one is pre-time gap. And this view adds long ages prior to God creating in Genesis 1-1. And so this fails for many reasons, including the fact that there cannot be millions of years of time prior to the creation of time. Um, and then uh, another version of gap theory is this late gap. And so they try to add long ages between Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, uh, which would mean that Adam and Eve lived in the garden uh, for long ages before sin. Uh, this would mean that Adam and Eve would have sinned by not being obedient to be fruitful and to multiply, uh, which was commanded them. Um, and also, Adam only lived 930 years um, and that's found in Genesis 5.5. So that just doesn't fit. Okay. Um, so, progressive creation and the day-age theory, those are kind of the same thing. Uh, that's received a lot of publicity, and it's um, kind of been made popular by uh, Dr. Hugh Ross, who's an astronomer. And so, some of the major points that this theory uh, contends is that the Big Bang origin of the universe occurred uh, 13 to 15 billion years ago. The days of creation were overlapping periods of millions and billions of years, so they weren't literal days. Uh, three, over millions of years, God created new species as others kept going extinct. And uh, four, death, bloodshed, and disease existed before Adam. Five, uh, man-like creatures that looked and behaved much like us existed before Adam and Eve, but they did not have a spirit that was made in the image of God, and so they had no hope for salvation. And then the last one is that the Genesis flood was a local event. Okay, um, so again, there are a number of different problems. Um, First, the order of evolutionary and geologic history contradicts the biblical order. So, for example, a secular scientist would assert that the sun is older than the earth and that invertebrates evolved prior to vegetation. And these are opposite in scripture. Um, two, this theory requires that there be multiple excuse me, billions of years of disease and death prior to the creation of Adam and Eve. Uh, and again, Romans makes it clear that death only entered creation when Adam first sinned. So, when God looked upon his creation and stated that it was good, this would have included the billions of years of death and suffering that preceded. Um, the theory also requires that uh, 
any human-like fossils that precede the dates of modern humans, uh, which would be about 40,000 years ago, they must uh, be pre-Adamic creatures, before Adam, creatures that had no spear. Uh, the problem is, is that this would include people groups like the Australian Aborigines, which are said to be 60,000 years ago. And this ignores evidence that these people groups were very much like modern humans. For example, they buried their dead, they painted on cave walls, and they had technology. Um, as well as Acts 17.26, which states that all people, um, excuse me, all people of earth are of one blood, being descended from Adam. Um, and then the theory also believes in a local flood that was contained to that Mesopotamian region, that region uh, of biblical times. And so this ignores a very clear understanding of the scripture. There are a number, uh, there are many questions that one has to answer for that to be true, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Um, another one here uh, is called framework hypothesis. And so um, that was developed in 1924. It's actually really popular uh, in academia. And so it aims to kind of reclassify, to, to call the genre of Genesis 1 as something other than a historical narrative. And it tries to identify semi-poetic devices or figurative language in the text. And so uh, its advocates argue that God created everything and that he made man in his own image, but that Genesis 1 gives us no information about how or when he did this. And so they, um, they cite three major arguments when trying to support framework hypothesis. Um, the first one is that uh, there are two triads of days. Okay? The days of creation are arranged in what's called a topical parallelism, where days one through three of creation, uh, those reflect the formation of the world, and days four through six which reflect the filling of the world, align with each other. So you can kind of see in this little chart um, how days one through three kind of align with their um, corresponding days in four through six. Uh, there's formation, and then there's filling of the same thing. Okay? That's the first argument. Uh, the second one is that there's this unending nature of the seventh day. So... The seventh day of creation is this unending period of time that still continues today. That's the assertion. And so this is derived from the fact that Genesis does not include the morning-evening formula of the previous days. And from the idea that the rest in Genesis is not the same as the rest in Hebrews 4, 1 through 10, which is ongoing. And so I'd like you to turn there to Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. Um, and I'll try to read through this quickly, but uh, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, 
So I swore in my wrath, and they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached and did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been set, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And so that's kind of where they get the idea that this rest, uh, which in Hebrews 4 is still ongoing for believers. Okay. And then the third argument is uh, something called ordinary providence. And this argument states that since Genesis 2, 5 through 6 says that there were not any plants of the field or herbs of the field because God had not caused it to rain yet, that this indicates that God was utilizing natural, excuse, natural processes like evaporation and rain uh, to create and not miraculous ones. So, um, why don't we go, we go ahead and turn to Genesis 2, 5, and 6. Okay. Um, and so this says, Before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to, fill, to till the, the ground, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. So they're kind of getting from those verses that God just used natural processes to create. Okay. So let's talk about those, the problems with it. So that first argument, the two triads of days. So there is significant literary and expert support for Genesis being written in historical narratives, including the work of uh, Many Hebrew scholars, including Stephen Boyd, who is a famous one. Uh, for example, there's this high frequency of preterite verbs indicating a sequence of events in the past tense, and that's distinctly narrative, while Hebrew poetry uses imperfect and perfect verbs. Um, there are also inconsistencies in the parallelism that the framework hypothesis tries to use. For example, the heavenly light bearers of day four were created in the first age, but the heavens of day two were created in the second age. So this would mean that the stars were placed into something that did not yet exist. Okay, um, and then going to the unending seventh day argument. Okay, uh, this is unnecessary, uh, excuse me, it is unnecessary for there to be a morning and evening formula on the seventh day since the whole purpose is to uh, mark the conclusion of a period of light when God suspends his creative activity of one day and to mark the renewal of light when God resumes his work. But this is unneeded on the seventh day since God has finished his creative work. Uh, with regards to Hebrew 4, that we, uh, the verses that we read earlier, 
The verses never state that day seven is continuing. They state that God's rest is ongoing. He started um, his cessation from divine created activity on that day, but the day itself is not continuing. Um, and then the last argument, ordinary providence. And so there are several uh, issues with this argument. There's a main logical fallacy that if God used millions of years of ordinary providence to bring the land from the ocean and to grow vegetation on the land, then why wasn't there any rain for that amount of time? After all, if God merely used natural processes, then the hydraulic cycle must have been in full swing at that time too. So um, those are some of the problems that exist with it. Um, okay. And so... Um, the next few slides are going to talk about how a secular approach to creation compromises the rest of Scripture. And so this is basically the practical application. So when you start to compromise on a literal creation, uh, how does this actually manifest itself in other issues of life? Um, and so that's kind of how, what we're going to talk about next. Okay. Um, so genealogies and patriarchs. Um, so if you hold to a secular worldview, then you must also question the Genesis chapters 1 through 11 since they include detailed genealogies that put restrictions on the age of the earth and they include uh, really old ages of patriarchs. Uh, in Genesis 5 and, uh, and chapter 11, they provide an unbroken genealogical and chronological chain from Adam to Abraham. And then it's repeated in 1 Chronicles which demonstrates that those Jews during the Persian period accepted that data as a reliable list of the ancestors of David and subsequent kings. And so those chronogenealogies, those lists of names, represent real historical people since they are directly attached to the physical descent of the Messiah, being Jesus, from Adam in Luke 3. The context demands that we treat them as actual father-son relationship and not as distant ancestors, because that's a common argument. Um, and the genealogies also demonstrate that the age of the patriarchs uh, actually followed a standard decay rate uh, with a really high degree of correlation until the time of David, when people started to have present-day lifespans, so you know, around 80 to 100 years old. And so this represents God's involvement in limiting lifespans and uh, most likely was due to genetic deterioration. We'll talk about that later. Um, and so kind of looking at this picture um, up there, you can kind of see how um, just according to Scripture, this is coming straight from Scripture, that the ages of people uh, began very high and then uh, followed a scientific decay rate down to uh, ages currently, and that's something that um, you can't just replicate. Um, okay, and so uh, if one assumes the truthfulness of God's word, the age of the earth can be traced back about 6,000 years, and that's going to be consistent with many scientific lines of evidence, and that's what we're going to talk about in later weeks. Okay, so this is an important slide. Um, Noah's flood. Many people claim that Noah's flood must have been local and not global, since they accept evolutionary theory, which interprets fossils 
as the history of the sequential appearance of life over long periods of time. Um, another workaround that people use is claiming that the world, the flood worldwide, um, only limited, only to the limited extent of human habitation at the time. So all living people lived in a valley in Mesopotamia, uh, such that a localized flood could still wipe out all of mankind, uh, but it was still in a local area. And so uh, there are many questions that you would have to answer uh, if you would hold to that. Uh, one, why would Noah have had to build an ark if he could have just walked to the other side of the mountains? Why would uh, why did God send animals to the ark if they could have just reproduced later? Why would birds need to be included if they could just be fly, if they could just fly away? And how could the waters rise eight meters above the mountains in a localized flood? This is what it would look like. This picture right here, and that's just foolishness. Um, why would it have taken seven months before the peaks of mountains became visible, and one year before Noah left the ark? And if the flood was local then God has repeatedly broken his promise to never send such a flood again. And there's also substantial scientific evidence for a worldwide flood, and again, that's something we're going to talk about later. Um, so, animal carnivory. In Genesis 1.30, it states, Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Therefore, all animals were initially created to be herbivores, with carnivory coming after sin was introduced into the world. However, those that say that God used evolution in his creative process must accept that God included death, cruelty, uh, suffering, scarcity, and the food chain as part of his good design. Evolutionists assert that certain animals must always have been obligate carnivores, meaning they must have eaten meat. Proven by the fossil record. Okay, but there's a number of examples of vegetarians among animals that would seem to be carnivores. For example, male mosquitoes actually consume nectar, not blood, for nutrition. The females likely transition to blood after the fall. Uh, in addition, many species of bats, which have really ferocious looking teeth, are fruitivores. And so this skull right here is actually of a bat that only eats fruit, uh, and yet it has very sharp teeth, and you would assume that this animal eats meat. Um, bears, including pandas, which have very large teeth, uh, they can survive only on fruit, nuts, bamboo, berries, and honey. Um, there's a species of jumping spider uh, that I have a picture of right here. It feeds only off of acacia trees. Um, vultures can survive only on palm fruits. And there are even accounts of lions that are exclusively vegetarian. And so the point of these um, examples is to illustrate how animals, even those with the tools to kill other animals, like very sharp teeth, very sharp claws, were originally vegetarian. Okay. Um, Alright, so death, disease, and Excuse me, disease, suffering, and death. So, death, suffering, disease, viruses, cancer, and thorns are rampant in our world today. And many people cite these as reasons not to believe in the God of the Bible. How could a completely sovereign and just God 
allow such tragedy to happen. So people who uh, uphold theistic evolution and many other variations of the creation account, they must acknowledge that God not only allows this tragedy, but that it was originally part of his very good creation. Since evolution uh, requires billions of years of death before the first sin, and again, this calls into question his character. So the proper understanding of this is that sin first entered the world through Adam, and this sin nature extended to the rest of humanity. Before sin, there was no death, suffering, or disease. But, uh, excuse me. but today, all of creation suffers from the effects of sin. That's found in Romans 8.22. And this necessitates a Savior, specifically a perfect blood sacrifice. I'm getting that from Hebrews 9. The reality is that no one, including children, is worthy to stand before the creator of the universe and we are deserving of far worse than our current suffering because we have sinned against an infinite and holy God. So, tragedy can be uh, used in multiple for multiple reasons. It can be used as judgment. It can be used as a trial to produce sanctification in the life of a believer. It can be used as a method to directly glorify God. Um... Or it can be a reason that God chooses to never reveal to the individual. That's found in Job. Um, but often it's simply a result of living in a broken and fallen world. But we can take heart because God is going to destroy death and restore our sin-cursed world to the way it once was. That's found in Revelation 22. Okay. Um... All right, so the origin of race and language. So the Bible establishes that all of humanity can go back to just two people, Adam and Eve. Acts 17.26 says, And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. So Adam and Eve likely were a middle shade of, uh, excuse me, a middle brown shade of skin color since this would have allowed uh, significant genetic variability that could be expressed in their children. So at the Tower of Babel, humanity rebelled against God by refusing to spread out in the world. So God confused their language and groups of people moved away from one another. These groups of people became genetically isolated, which means that certain traits would become more prominent. They would rise to the surface. They also developed their own cultures and their own ways of doing things. Skin colors became different, partly due to, to environmental factors. For example, people living near, near the equator developed darker skin to help protect them from the intense sunlight. Genetically, a person is no more than 0.1% different from any other human, which illustrates that all of humanity is of one race, not multiple. In Scripture, we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves and to give preference to one another. Galatians 3.28 states, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are, all in, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And on the other hand, racism has deep evolutionary roots. According to the evolutionary worldview, 
humans evolved from an ape-like ancestor over millions of years. A lot of people have used this philosophy to teach that different people groups evolved at different rates. This allowed them to consider some people groups to be less evolved than others, some races closer to apes than others. And so this kind of leads us to uh, the secular approach to race. And one prominent worldview that's currently being taught today uh, is called critical race theory. You've probably heard of it. Uh, it's an ideology that divides the world into oppressed groups and their oppressors, and it aims to liberate the oppressed. Uh, CRT, critical race theory, it borrows concepts from classical Marxism, which divides the world into the haves and the have-nots, and it attempts to right the wrongs of previous generations through uh, redistrib redistribution of wealth and power, particularly to those with higher, uh, something that's called intersectionality, which means an individual that belongs to different groups that are considered to be oppressed. Um, CRT appeals to many because there's an element of truth in it. The history of America has been riddled with genuine racism, and Christians should acknowledge that racism is a real sin, according to Scripture. Um, according to CRT, truth is, is determined experientially and subjectively by historically oppressed groups of people and is integrated into racial, social, sexual, income, or gender identities. Um, however, according to Scripture, there is objective truth that's found only in God's Word. That comes from John 17, 17. Truth is in Jesus, not in any oppressed group's shared experiences. It also promotes uh, ethnic discrimination and has even taken on characteristics of its own religion. The core sin of this religion is racism, which must be combated through the works of anti-racism. And... Uh, the resulting ethnocentrism, so this elevates some races over other races, and it discriminates in the process. So at its core, CRT uh, is a Marxist-motivated ideology that ignores the God of the Bible, and it creates division and power struggles, and this makes it a false worldview. So uh, how should Christians, uh, how should we respond to racism? Um... Biblically, we ought to care for one another regardless of skin shade, uh, regardless of social status, nationality, disability, personal struggles. And so according to Scripture, uh, we ought to love one another. We ought to build one another up, give preference to one another, stimulate one another to good deeds, and bear with one another's burdens. We should be hospitable to one another, and we should pray for each other. And so... Um, yeah, that's it, guys. Um, that was the first week, and so, um, you know, I didn't really talk about sciences today. Uh, the next two weeks are going to be heavy on, on sciences, and again, I, I know some of it might go over your heads, but um, I think you can still glean important uh, principles from it that you can take with you later on. And so, uh, next week is going to be talking about uh, cosmology, uh, kind of theorizing how the universe came to be. Astronomy, uh, organic chemistry, geology, and radiometric dating, so dating of rocks. Um, 
Then the third week is going to talk about natural selection, mutations, evolution of man, the fossil record, and dinosaurs too. Um, and then the last week, um, or week four I should say, is probably my favorite. And it's going to talk about specific arguments against creationism. Uh, specific arguments for creationism, and then arguments that creationists uh, shouldn't use. And so, that is it, guys. Thank y'all for listening.